Welcome to Season 4, Episode 7 of the Coaching Badges Podcast. Brought to you with the support of our good friends at Playerstat Data. Thanks for joining us tonight, folks. Hope everybody's keeping well. Joining me on the show tonight, as usual, my co-host, Mark Anderson. Always good to see you, mate. Despite the rumours, I can confirm that Liverpool have not bid for him in the transfer window. His wage demands were simply too high. On the show tonight, the usual news and war chest items, along with a great guest, 3v3 guru Peter Prickett from the world of coaching. It promises to be a cracker. So, Mark, to kick things off, what's caught your eye in the world of sport over the last few weeks? It's mostly football-based. Um, I'll come to the big international topics, but it's great to see some of the young Irish internationals and players that we would know. Um, people like Festy getting called up into the national team and Evan Ferguson going from strength to strength, which is always fantastic to see. A couple of other young lads around doing really, really well. Um, Sean Gretna Palace and uh, Lee Cavanaugh as well. They're going out on loan. So there's lots of really, really good stuff. Uh, even even the, um, some of the lads in Scotland doing really well at Motherwell. And of course, um, coming to the business end of the Stadium League of Ireland, which I think has been a very open season. Um, I suppose if you're a Rovers fan, questions marks about this, the amount of uh, defeats and big games that you've lost recently in a league that I actually thought they would win. Bowles, Doggett still hanging in and a lot of the others still around, so it's been an exciting league. Transfer window is closing and the money from the Middle East has just distorted the whole thing. And I look uh, on, as I said in the last one, with glee at all the English Premier League clubs crying for what they've been fucking doing for years. But how you go, that's just me as a Celtic fan. Of course, um, but I suppose two of the big things for me has to be the, the breaking news just very recently before we recorded this of Vera Powell, um, a contract not being renewed. I have to be honest, personally, I find it very strange. One of only three managers in Irish history to get us to a World Cup and far from disgraced herself. Um, and if they use the same kind of way to judge, um, you'd have to question why some of our international managers on the men's side are still in positions or have kept positions for that long. So I don't know. As always, it'll all wash itself out. Um, interesting that some of the comments she made where she she alleged some of her backroom team turned against her in the final few weeks and all of that, which kind of leads to all, you wonder what kind of a set it up. But it just seems to be that in football, in Ireland, at international level with the FEI, there is just nothing straightforward about what goes on. Whatever people may think, and I know there was a lot of controversy in the lead up to it with allegations um, from America and everything else that were only allegations. She did an excellent job. Should she achieve more? I don't know. When you look at the group she was in, I thought they competed. They competed probably better than some of the men's team did in some of the competitions they got to. So I think it's a bit remiss now, personally, myself. But that's from just what I've seen from the outside. And then, of course, the whole tournament has been studied by the behaviour and the ramifications of uh, the Spanish FA and everything else that's going on. Again, there's there's a couple of different people have opinions on that. Um, was it overreaction and everything else of that? But to me, I don't think you'd see any of the male team being treated that way. So for me, that's the starting point for me. So I just think it's disgraceful that in this day and age, when we still talk about equality, we talk about a Spanish team that fell out with our coach. There was revolt and everything else, producing incredible, incredible set of uh, performances to win in a very exciting competition, but it's a super final, I thought. And their whole legacy um, is ruined by the behaviour of the president of the Spanish FA. Yeah, yeah, I have to agree with you there. Jesus, lots to unpack there. So it is a pity that the tournament itself has been a little bit overshadowed um, by one, the Spanish controversy, obviously. And there's been lots of different opinions on that. So don't want to get into that. But I did think it wouldn't happen in the, in the men's game. 
And you get obviously two sides to every story. So maybe we don't know all the facts, but certainly there's been lots of stuff going around to suggest that the things were not all well in that camp for a long time. And obviously with an Irish slant, uh, the women did really, really well. And yet it's all been kind of overshadowed almost immediately after the tournament with all this talk of what had gone on in the past or didn't go on. And, and obviously attention turned immediately to the contract negotiations and they've made a decision for whatever reason not to renew the contract. So yeah, you're right. It is a little bit unfortunate that it's taken a bit of a gloss off, you know, their first ever appearance for the, for the senior women's team at a final, which is a brilliant achievement. And I think you're right. I think they competed very well. I think it's interesting what you said there. Um, the women's game is on the crest of a wave, even though it's still under-resourced, under-financed and under-publicised or hasn't got the PR that it deserves. And yes, we're sitting here talking about controversy as opposed to a World Cup that produced drama, skill, athleticism and fantastic performances. And it just, you know, I know there's always stuff after the men's game, but it doesn't like seem to... Um, engulfed nations the way this has or even captured the imagination internationally and i just think it's yeah i just think it's such a missed opportunity to champion the sport for young girls to go and play and see as role models that they're still dealing with this kind of shit at that level yeah you know i mean like even the even like even the english team that the english goalkeeper's jersey wasn't allowed i saw that i mean for fuck's sake like you that cannot be like, I mean, someone in Nike must be sitting there going, just just talk me through that process and where we came to that as a decision, please. A lot of the time you feel, you know, for every step forward, there's a step back and there's people only too happy to jump on the criticism bandwagon and, you know, row in behind knocking the, the women's game when it is growing exponentially over the last few years. So, look, but I'm sure we'll come back to it again, mate. But yeah, look, it shouldn't take away from the fact that there are lots of young kids now been inspired, particularly young girls, to go and take up the sport. And that has to be a good thing. I just yeah. hope it does get the, the support and the resourcing that it deserves. And I, I know they've appointed Eileen Gleason in an interim basis. Fantastic coach, fantastic football person. So I think that's a good a good appointment. And it'll be interesting to see what happens next. But yeah, as I said, no doubt we'll come back to that. I'm glad you mentioned the League of Ireland. I think it's been a really interesting uh, league, both Premier and First Division this year. Very, very competitive. Lots of sides doing very well this year. And you mentioned, of course, some of the young Irish players over the water. Let's not forget Andy Morn, um, who's just uh, yes. completed his loan with the Blackburn. I think that's a really good move for that kid. And what a very, debut. very talented. What a debut. Oh, like, listen. Superb assistance. I hope he continues to progress. We, you know, we we and others know him a long time, and we certainly know he has potential. I just hope he's given the room to progress. I think it was a good move by Brighton to send him to a club that does play attractive possession-based yeah. football. I think that'll suit him. But certainly he's maturing all the time, and that's nice to see. Lots I think of it's something that we might come back to on another episode of the podcast is the amount of young Irish talent going abroad to Italy and places like that with various yeah. degrees of success. And, and I mean, for someone, I, I spoke to someone recently there who said, um, but they're not getting games. And I think at that age, they're getting experience to a different culture, style of football, which I think at that age is as invaluable in a learning yeah. process game as it is to go into a championship, first division, second division club in England. 100%. Yeah, listen, I, I think you're dead right. We'll return to that, mate, and uh, chat about that at length again. Cheers. Nice one. On now to our guest slot. And as you know, every episode, we try to bring people on to offer a different perspective on the world of football or sports or coaching in an effort to increase our own knowledge and improve our self-development. Tonight, we're delighted to be joined by Peter Prickett. Uh, some people might know him as the bearded coach from Twitter to talk about his work as both a successful coach and author. 
Peter has been a professional coach for over a decade now. His coaching experience has taken him from all age groups, from under fives up to adults, working in both the male and female game. Peter has completed a master's in performance football coaching at St. Mary's University. He's also an FA Level 3 and UEFA qualified coach and was one of the first coaches in the UK to achieve the UEFA B futsal qualification. Over the last decade, Peter has written many articles in long form and blogs. His articles have featured in publications such as These Football Times, Pogma Goal and Total Football Analysis. He's since moved into writing football books, including a brilliant series relating to the 3v3 game in terms of helping to develop players. So welcome to the pod, Peter. It's absolutely brilliant to finally have you on, mate. Pete, before we get into some questions, you might just give our listeners an overview in your own words of your coaching journey to date. Oh, first of all, thanks very much for, for having me on. Uh, looking forward to it. Uh, I've been coaching for quite a few years now. I started to get into coaching because we had a recession and I needed a job. And someone said to me, try IT. They need people there. Um, and I went and sat down with somebody uh, who talked me through how long it would take and how long and how much it would cost and all that sort of thing. And I went, okay, I'll have a think about it. And I didn't, don't really like computers that much. And I was sitting watching Soccer AM and Max Rushton was doing his level one qualification as a piece on there. And I was watching it and thinking, if they had told me that it took that amount of time and that amount of money to do coaching qualifications, would I do it? And I answered to myself, yes, I would. So that's how I decided I would get involved. Wow, fantastic. How, how long ago is that, Peter? Oh, about 15 years now, coming up to? Something like that. Started, vol- started off volunteering and from the volunteering got offered the odd session here and there which developed into basically working full-time excellent and was that your first interest in coaching like was that you know when and why you decided to go into coaching or had you done anything in it prior to that I don't really I mean I don't I played a little bit but not to a particularly high standard um but I was always interested in tactics and that side of the game and and the, the sort of more nuts and bolts side of things so coaching wasn't far away from what I was interested in anyway. Fantastic. It, it, that's interesting because we we look, we chat to a lot of coaches and I'm always fascinated by, you know, where their start is. And for some people, it's natural. Like myself, I finished playing and that just fell into coaching. Other people, you know, decided to go down the coaching route very young. Others fell into it because of their kids and all. So there's so many different reasons how and why you can end up in coaching. So I'm always curious to see what was that initial spark. I, I actually had quite a specific aim in my mind and that was I was as a football fan I didn't see enough exciting flair players and in my I don't know naivety but also a bit of arrogance I thought I want to try and help develop more of this type of player so that was my that was my motivation and it was always actually developing players so I've had conversations with coaches where I've I've asked them why did you want to become a coach and they give me answers and I'm thinking, you don't actually want to be a coach. You want to be a manager because you want to go and win trophies. Yeah, 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 You don't actually want to really be a coach. But my motivation was always to help coach people. 
Brilliant. Yeah, really like that. Because it's funny, look, we we joke about it a lot, but I, I played League of Ireland in the 90s and it was pretty attritional. Right? Football back then was a, a tough game, wasn't a huge amount of technical ability or quality. And it was a lot of it was just pure physicality. And my my start in coaching was always to try and teach players to play a totally different way. Once I started to see, you know, how decent technical players could actually play in my head, I was always like, well, I want to try and teach players to play like that. You know, because it's very, it's even in Ireland still, sadly, it's probably not the 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 way most players play. There still is quite a large involvement of physicality, as as there is in the UK. But that was funny. That was one of the reasons I wanted to start to try and teach kids to play a different way to what we learned. You know, because don't get me wrong, I had some brilliant coaches over the years, and they probably caught, taught me with what was best practice at the time. You know, to survive and and win games at that level. But certainly once I started to realize there was a better way of playing, I was like, yeah, that's that's what I want to do. And then I was lucky enough to meet a couple of coaches along the way, like Mick Brown, who, you know, I saw coaching very early on and went, well, there are people who can teach players to play like that. You know, so I wanted to learn more about that. So, yeah, very, very interesting. I think it's very admirable. That, like, and I don't think it's naive and that that the reason that you said, Peter, that you wanted to get a coaching was to try to do something a little bit different. I think the best coaches do that because they identify there's a need or a niche to develop the player and develop the individual. I don't have the experience of playing or coaching the likes of Gav have, but I always thought that I had had I had a skill set around working and managing with young people and people that is akin to any sport um, or any kind of style. Um, and I, I think there's an awful lot of coaches miss that bit. They, what, what's your why? I say it to everybody, why do you do it? Everybody knows what to do, how to do it. But why do you do it? And if you know why you do something, it usually makes you better than most of the others. Sometimes you need to remember it. When you work in the game, as as I do, as, as Gavin does, you, the reason why changes, the reason why you're doing something is sometimes because someone's told you to do it and they're paying you to do it in a certain way. If you can remind yourself why you got involved in the first place, it can help drag that back towards you and what you hope for from your players. And we talk about player-centric approaches, but that I don't think there can ever truly be a player-centric centric approach because the coach is there. It's how much of the coach gives away to the players. And that could be that could be almost everything. Because if your belief, and this is mine, is in trying to make sure that the players have enough confidence and game understanding and decision making to actually do it without me then I'm prepared to give it all all away all the power all the control I'm just the anchor they they get to do all the decisions or near enough all of them that's that's me my ultimate aim which is why I'm happy to talk about me as a coach because I know that I give a lot away to the players anyway I, I like that I, I think that's fascinating do you think there are too many coaches out there who remain far too guarded to give away that much control to the players? And and to your point, it can never be truly player-centric if there is a coach there. Is that then the only form of player-centric development is back on the streets when there was no coaches, there was no adults? I think in terms of them actually developing and having, having complete autonomy over their own development, yeah, I think so. Because ultimately... If there is a coach there, the coach will try and instruct and that will take away the autonomy. Unless 
And sometimes this does happen. There's a complex series of, of discussions and checks between player and coach where they have aligned their their goals and their aims. And then the instruction and direction and, and hinting and controlling comes from an agreed place rather than from the coach going, no, I want you to go and do this because I think it's best for you or best for the team. Yeah, I like that. I'd, I'd love to chat way more about that. Funny, I laughed this week. I see, I think it's Liverpool are been lauded, you know, for putting in cages in their training ground. Yes, I saw that. To recreate the street. And I'm going, wow, that's that's mental. Like the likes, of, I'm not being funny, the likes of Joseph's down in Sally Noggin have cages for years and they've developed unbelievable players through, you know, bounce games and stuff like that. So I think it's gas now that, you know, just because Liverpool are doing it, everybody's talking about it, about recreating the street. We, we had a we had a massive focus on South London, South East London, yeah. because yeah. they were all, that was the hotbed of those cages. And then you speak to people who were involved at Manchester United for years and a part of what they did, they used cage football as well. So it's not, you know, it's like you're saying, they, they're lauding it, but it's not, it's not new. But maybe the fact that the club's, are having to bring it in says something about where society is in terms of kids being able to play. Sorry, Mark. We had Martin O'Neill on there recently and he spoke about like, I mean, the difference between, I was asking about coaches and he was obviously uh, waxing lyrical and praising for the likes of Pep and everything else, but he but he was saying it's just different terminology from when he was there with Brian Clough and what Brian Clough and uh, Peter Taylor were saying to him as a player of Forest is just Exact same as Pep is saying, but just different language. Um, and it goes back to that street footballer. And I think everybody goes on about developing the street footballer, developing the street footballer. And I, I, I struggle with this going, well, what's that actually mean? Um, because to me, it, it's about just developing the person and just giving them the toolkit. And one of the most influential coaches um, I've met, I mean, I met Mick Brown and all that. I could speak with Mick for days, no end. But I met a guy in Celtic called Martin Miller who was head of the youth department, and he always spoke about that every player is a project. And you have to give this, every player this imaginary backpack and you fill it with information that they can use over their life to take that piece of information out for whether it's something at school, college, on a pitch, work-related, or even at home. And that's your role, is about developing the person and developing the whole person, mind and everything else. And football uh, will follow on from that. And when you talk about people talking about cage football and everything else, I just think... We spend more time wrapped up in the latest phrase or the latest name and forget about developing the individual and the person specific to them. Player-centric. I mean, like, oh, what's that actually mean? We actually really just care about what the player learns. Oh, well, was that not a given? Should we not do that? So I just, I sometimes struggle. Maybe that's because I haven't had the most conventional route into football. I was, I, had, I started coaching because my son played at the local team and I was asked to take the team. So I went in with no preconceived notions, ideas. And I probably had a very different approach, not saying it was the right or the wrong one, but it just makes you question things when I hear all these things and I see the latest download. Or um, I always joke after every European Championship, World Cup, it'll be within three days, learn to play the Croatia way, learn to play the get these free downloads. And I think we just lose a run of ourselves. I think, Mark, really, it's a couple of, there's a couple of things there that I think are quite interesting. Like some of these phrases that are used, like player centric, the inter what we are told they mean it's almost kind of sometimes anti-language or anti-linguistic because it doesn't that's not player centric what they say it means like, well if you understand those two words that's not what that's meant to mean 
Uh, DNA. I've had a massive problem with the England DNA for ages because it's a wish list. Your DNA is not a wish list. It's it's historically what you what you are. I mean, they're yeah. talking England DNA, but it's actually gene sequencing and basically picking whether your child is a boy or a girl. That's what they're using the DNA to mean. So there's a lot of terms and phrases that have been taken from what they logically mean in terms of in English language and made to mean something else because it's convenient and it's snappy. I mean, we end up talking about semantics, but still, it is that, that is interesting. It's fascinating. And like speak, speaking of language and, and speaking of how you interpret stuff, I'd love to take us a little bit on a tangent, Pete, now to talk about your books. You know, you've written a number of books. Um, I love the 3v3 series. I, I hope we get to chat about that a little later. But I'm I'm nearing the end of your recent book, uh, the one you wrote with Peter Thornton, uh, Moments That Could Have Changed Football Forever, The, the What Ifs. And I have to say, if you, if you to the listeners, if you haven't read it, check it out. There's some brilliant what ifs. Like, what if Ronaldo played with Messi instead of always arguing about who was better? What if Rangers or Celtic played in the Premier League? You know, all kinds of brilliant, brilliant what ifs. And I've I've thoroughly enjoyed it, mate. So one, you might just tell us a little bit about the genesis of that book. But two, the fact that you've written so many, I'd, I'd love to chat to you a little bit about how you actually even go about approaching, you know, writing a football book. So this, the latest book, uh, Moments That Could Have Changed Football Forever, came from... Ronaldo and Messi and the constant Twitter war between the Ronaldo and Messi factions of who's the greatest and who's the best. Before we start, before we start, Peter, what camp are you in? Messi. That's okay. We can continue the podcast. Thank you. I, very much. And uh, that's that's in in my intro to the book. I talk about the genesis and people wasting their energy discussing it and arguing about it and saying, can't we just enjoy them both and appreciate them both? And I do say in in brackets, by the way, it's messy. Um, can we imagine what it'd be like if they played together? So that's how it began. I, I decided I'd write a blog post on it. And at that time, the approach was for me to write it in one way. And I got two other people to write how they thought it would play out as well. Um, and it went down quite well. But then Peter Thornton called me. He'd read it, uh, the blog, and went, we, we should write this as a book. And so we went through multiple questions and moments from football history and picked out a few and we had to come up with some rules for it as well because the the bigger clubs the more successful clubs will have lots and lots of these moments Uh, but we didn't really want to write a book where there are 10 from the history of Manchester United we picked a couple out but we tried not to do too many um and when if the if the payoff for the what if was as simple as the team would have won the league and there's not much else to it, we didn't really follow up on it. So that's how we, we got onto that. And we, we got our list of ideas, narrowed those down to 20 something, picked a few each. And then as we cracked on with them, the occasional additional one pit popped up like, um, the Pele one in there. I asked, what if Pelé had come to Europe? Uh, that cropped up as well. Um, and we went with that because I think people had been questioning how good he actually was because so many of his goals were in friendlies. Yeah. Then you look into it and you go, well, those friendlies were against the best teams in Europe. Maybe they might, those goals might have had some merit to them. And so, yeah. And that was actually before he died. And that then left us with a question. 
should we change this? And yeah. I said, no, no, let's just, just, just leave it. Just, just leave it as it is. Well, it, it's very, very good. W- one of the chapters I thoroughly enjoyed because everyone says it all the time is it's, it's the, what if is what if there was no offside rule? Yeah. Uh, Cause people always say, ah, oh, if there was no offside, it'd be a better game. But when you actually read through the argument put forward for how it would change the game totally tactically, it's brilliant. It's really well put. And you, you very quickly realize, no, we need offside. <laughs> so but it's it's very well done. I, I like that because it, it, when I read that one first, I thought, obviously, people will just say, oh, there'll be loads more goals. But when you actually read how people put forward a good argument for how tactics would change, it all of a sudden you see it could, there might be no goals. <laughs> you know, so it, it's it might be very, very good. Yeah, very and, clever. And we, and we say that these are just our opinions. Of course. Yeah. Feel, feel free to come up with your own. And if all the book does is get the reader thinking and they end up chucking the book around their house because they're furious with what we've written, it doesn't matter. That's fine. That, that's Then it's done It's, it's done what it's set up out to do. Listen, we, people we are using all, their imagination. all seasoned battle scarred Twitter Tonians are now exes or whatever we are now. Um, so, yeah, I love the extremists on Twitter. So, yeah. I like the fact that this puts some of those arguments on paper and lets people think about it. But yeah, it, it's always good to throw out a couple of these questions onto Twitter and just see the reaction of people. It's it's quite bizarre. What were, what were some of the ones that didn't make a PR into the book? Uh, well, we didn't. Two that people always come up with and ask us, and we didn't put them in. What if R9 doesn't get injured? Oof, yeah. Yeah. Um, that was very close to going in, to be honest, but we, we left it out. And the other one is, what if Steven Gerrard doesn't slip? <laughs> his whole trajectory of the rest of his career could have changed completely. And Brendan Rodgers. Ah, listen, there are those sliding door moments. It's brilliant. And that's why I love the book, because it really could take things off on a totally it's, different tangent. The, the Gerrard one didn't get in because I was just thought it was a little bit more interesting to talk about what if Gerrard had signed for Chelsea and see if Mourinho could have got that Gerard and Lampard thing working yeah. in a way that England managers didn't. But that was also, that was a real hair, hair in it, deciding which one went in those two ideas. I think the real Ronaldo one now, I, I actually sometimes, I drift off in moments thinking about that World Cup and everything else. And I mean, what what happened? What really happened? And like, I mean, and if he had finished that tournament the way he should have, and the way his talent probably deserved, where that could have gone to after that. Oh, listen, well, that's, that's what I love about talking about football. There's so many what-ifs. Pete, there's a sequel there, mate. You know, definitely. Book two. You, we have another we're, question we're about We're talking ready. about it. It will depend on sales, obviously, and on what the publisher thinks. But even if I don't write a sequel, I'll, I'll be writing another book soon enough anyway. Daddy, you can do a sequel just on Irish football and League of Ireland <laughs> and schoolboy stuff alone. alone. You could do probably six chapters of that. <laughs> well, what if Dave Barry only played soccer? <laughs> he's a legend of hurling and Gaelic in this country but he played soccer as well he scored against Bayern Munich by the way um, but a Cork City legend so yeah we could come up with tons of Irish questions That'd it, be really- in a way what I said earlier about the big big clubs successful clubs with each one potentially having enough material for a book of its own yeah that's another angle maybe down the road well, I, I mentioned that I think in the question in the first instance I'm fascinated I always have a notion I'd love to write a book but I haven't a clue where to even begin. So what, like, what's the approach to, say, taking a topic, say, something in football, and saying, right, I'm actually going to write a book about this. You know, like, what's involved? Just high-level stuff. 
Well, the the genesis of my books has been interesting because it's not necessarily been that I've come up with an idea. Okay, moments that could change football came, was came in in that way. The three v three stuff began because I was working on a a unit of of the timetable of, of the the schedule at work, and it was two v twos and three v threes, and I was doing two v twos that week, and I wasn't happy with them because they felt too linear. There weren't enough game actions. There weren't enough decisions or options for the players. So, okay, we'll look at 3v3 next week. So I'm doing a bit of scribbling. I I go onto Twitter and I put out a request. Has anyone got any good 3v3 materials? And this is probably at a time when Twitter was better at sharing than it has been recently, although apart from on a Sunday. But I got I got next to nothing wow. back, which was interesting. And that just made me go, okay, fine. I'll do it myself then. So I came up with a bunch of 3v3 games that were designed to try and get specific game actions and moments out within each game. I then shared those on social media. The feedback was, oh, these are really good. You should put them in a book. I probably meant an ebook or a booklet or something. Um, yeah. And I thought, yeah, yeah, sure. And then... Some time passed and I thought, maybe I could have a go at this. And I went along the bookshelf and I looked at who the publishers were of the coaches who, to be honest, I'd not really heard of. And one particular publisher, which is Benny and Kearney, had given an opportunity to these guys. So I got in touch with them. I sent them my idea and I said, yeah. They said it will be print to order. So as as people order it, only then is a copy printed and it's still that. They said, we're happy to go with it, but don't be surprised if as a debut author in quite a niche area, you only sell about 100 copies. Yeah, yeah. Okay, sure. I knew we'd done 100 in the the first week. So I was then after 500 and after more. And I think the first 3v3 book has sold something like 4,000 copies now. Brilliant. They're very, very good. You might just which your coaching had on for a minute, just talk to us about the benefits of 3v3, you know, just from a practical player development point of view. So for me, it kind of does come down just to maps, just to maps. So the most touch of the ball you can have as a player, and I, and this comes out of my belief in looking to develop players who, who are good on the ball, exciting, expressive decision makers, you're only going to be able to do that really if you get lots of touch of the ball. So... If you even if you're doing five v five, it's ten to one the ratio. The most touch you can get is one versus zero, but there's no decision making. We go to one v one, one v one, brilliant, very important, but obviously some major elements of the game missing. I can't pass the ball to anyone. So let's go up to two v one or maybe even two v two. Great, but then we're still very linear, not that many movements. If we get to three v three. We then start to make game realistic shapes, triangles of different uh, setups as well in those triangles. And then you've got your key movements, dropping in third man runs, up, back and through, overlaps and so on. And then you also got more defensive structure in there. So just having those couple of extra players, you get more realistic game moments. Now, obviously, the next point is, well, if that's the case, then why don't you do 4v4? Um, and my contention was that the trade-off 
of lose of adding those two players versus the amount of game actions that you gain, especially at younger ages, was probably not worth it. So I contend that 3v3 is the format where you can get the most game actions with the highest player to ball ratio. So the highest amount of touches and decisions per player, potentially. Of course, you might still get that situation where one player is unbelievable and just touches it more times than the other five combined. But then you, you play around with what you've got in your session and yeah, you deal with that in a different way. Yeah, it's, it's it's fantastic. I like I like the way you kind of think about it in terms of the type of area that you work in. Is there an optimal area for you or any better than others? Uh, like as in, you know, do, do having goals in there make it better or not? Depends on what you first. This is where I talked about different outcomes, different game actions. Um, so the, the things that players are, are most drawn to in the game are depending on the age and depends that changes the order, but the ball, the goal, yeah, opponents, teammates, and space. Now we'd love it to be that our players are most drawn to space but that's going to be somewhere down the road in their development. Yeah. So if we consider that those are the things that they're most drawn to, those are the things that we can manipulate. So if the practice is about dribbling and the goals might be too distracting for them, take them out. Yeah. Put end zones in. If the game is about playing forward, again, you can still use your end zones to play into, or you could put target players in, still 3v3. And so and develop it so on. If it's about shooting, let's have two nice big goals at each end and shrink the space, and we're gonna get ton. We're gonna get tons of shots. So, is it better or not? It really depends on what you're looking at and what you're trying to do. But I will say, the most fun is going to be having two futsal or handball sized goals yeah. at each end, and it's going to be about twenty meters long and maybe 10 12 meters wide and just doing that having a player who's a goalkeeper but can come out and do whatever they want as well that's going to be the most fun excellent i love that and i think that's brilliant advice to any coaches have your have your key things that you're trying to get across but understand what is the outcome you're trying to get and and don't be afraid to experiment I think a lot of younger coaches that I've seen are almost afraid to experiment because they're afraid that if it doesn't look right or look well to onlookers, that people think they don't know what they're doing. And I think some of the best learnings happen when you are working it out in your own head or you're working it out live with the players and seeing what works and what doesn't work and also what they're enjoying and not enjoying. I think that's a really good point you make about what's I've I've said it in our organisation. When you've got a coach who comes in and does a trial session, how many of them do a game? That's quite, it's quite brave to go and do a game. But actually, if you're doing a game and you, you're going to get everything out, all your principles of play are going to occur. Your core skills are going to be there. You're going to get opportunities to coach it. Just start with a game and then do that play, practice, play, whole part, whole, whatever you want to call it. Cause it's been told, called a few different times things recently. Then go to that. And you could do a little practice in there and then you, you do a game. And do you know, if you, if you, if you've got an hour and you're doing that and they play a game and your practice bit absolutely sucks and then they do a game. Well, do you know what? The worst thing that has happened is the players have played 35 to 40 minutes of football. They won't complain too much. Yeah. Brilliant. Love that. 
I do like that. Yeah, I think that's I think that's where I think Gavi made a great point there about coaches and not willing to get out of their comfort zone and be afraid to get it wrong. There's more learnings that way. Um, and yeah, and it, it's I don't think there's ever anything such as a bad session if you learn from it or you don't adapt or change or be and then you know, okay, we've marked that one down to it's pissing rain or it's just too windy and the players have just no interest. It's nothing wrong with the session. If I could just ask you though, just to just to move on a little bit. Considering like your background and, and and all the knowledge that you have and in the books and everything else, where do you think or what do you think the world of coaching looks like now? Um, because the landscape has changed so much pre-COVID, the impact of COVID, and then people doing stuff online, Zoom and everything else, stuff that we never even think. We even coaching players or when you couldn't get to them to where people coming back in a different world, a different mindset. Where do you think, what do you think coaching looks like now? In terms of coach education, I'm a little bit worried about what people are experiencing. Um, just this this past week gone, I helped put a, a group of young people through the English FA's Playmaker course, which is below the introduction because they changed everything. It was Playmaker introduction UEFA C, and the amount of information that they receive is very limited, which might not be a massive problem if they had a tutor to help give them more info to help mm. them actually practice planning a session. That's one of the things I did with them. I went through a bunch of things that they should consider and then said, have a go. And then when they were stuck, try to help them. They're not going to get that experience in England until UEFA C, which for me is a, is a big problem. They're go- not going to get face to face with a tutor until UEFA C. So they just ha- sat there with someone on Zoom, who's talking to 10 or 12 people, or maybe even more, and not even talking to them. So how much how much actual personalized learning are they receiving? It's not going to be a lot. So I'm a little I am a little bit concerned about the people who are coming through and have done those courses. It's going to be very different to people who've done the old level one and coming through. And yes, COVID was an opportunity that was taken for this to happen. But I'm I'm quite aware that with the English FA, they changed the head of coach education to someone who had been working with another national governing body. And one of the things that they did was they put everything online there. So I think they used it as an opportunity. Interesting. We spoke off air just before the show started about the fact that, you know, it's great that now go back a decade ago, people were reticent to share stuff. It's getting better uh, you, you briefly mentioned your the Sunday Share initiative, which is great. I know you're part of that, and people are getting better at sharing. But I still think it was like what I said to you earlier. Uh, you know, handing somebody a cookbook doesn't make them a good chef. So handing somebody a load of session plans doesn't make them a good coach. So I do think there's a bit missing where, just like what we're doing now, where we're just chatting about coaching. And even as you're chatting, you're listening and you're learning, but you're also thinking about how would you practically apply that in a session? Like I'm sitting here thinking how I could put on a 3v3 session right now. So it's great to have those discussions. And I think that is a bit lacking in Coach Ed at the minute. There's lots of good courses out there, lots of good content, Mm -hmm. but I think there's not a lot of good discussion. And, And look, Mark and I have been very, very privileged to meet lots of good coaches over the years. But the best learnings are just when we sit down and start yakking about it to each other. And literally yeah. challenging each other on Absol- stuff. Respectfully. Absolutely. It's it's great. I mean, some I'm fortunate that I've, I've worked with a coach who uh, used to play for the Morocco national team. 
and he's he's a very good coach. Um, and some of the best stuff that I've learned is just when he and I and a couple of others, we just, so our lunch break, and we've just sat and we've gone, oh, I'm thinking about doing this tonight. And just from doing that, you get this idea come out and this idea come out and you kind of explain, you are, as you're doing it, explaining it to each other as to this is why I'm going to do this. And yeah. the why we're going to do this is often lacking. And the, the um, FA youth modules were actually brilliant for explaining the why. And they got put into the level one and the level two and the UA for B, and now they're gone. So wow. some of the, don't ask me why, I can't answer that. Yeah, <laughs> but yeah. some of the best coach learning was taken away because okay. it really explained why and the consequences of what you might do, how just changing this shape or adding this player can have a big impact on the outcome. Okay, yeah. Very interesting. You, you mentioned your friend there, the the ex Moroccan international. Uh, who, like I, I'm the same. I, I've lots of people. Thankfully, I've leaned on over the years and learned from. Who who are the other kind of coaches you've admired? You know, over the last decade or so, Pete. Um. So coaches who I try and keep an eye out on their on their work. Michael Beale was probably the first one. Um. One of the the first things that I was handed as an inexperienced coach, and I'm probably really lucky that this was handed to me because it fit with my thinking and I guess has helped drive where I'm going gone since 64 small-sided games by Michael Beale and that helped show what could be done and I did I I would just say that I actually probably didn't really understand it initially and then actually I'll give the FA credit here those youth modules and youth awards helped me to understand what was going on in them. Yeah. And the combination of those two things, I would, and and doing futsal uh, as well, putting those together really helped blend the learning that and, and that came out as as those 3v3 games. Brilliant. So Michael Beal would be one. Pep Linders is another. Um, there is a video on YouTube, I don't know if it's still there, of him working in, at Porto. And it was fantastic because it talked all about letting the players fly. And they said that when players score goals, they fly. So everything involved goals and the players enjoying it and feeling excited and infused. And, and that's come into my coaching. And it's really interesting. That's the first time I came across him. And he's ended up where he is now as the assistant manager to, to Jurgen Klopp. Horst Vane, I have to mention, because in terms of 3v3, he is, he's the granddaddy of it, as far as I'm concerned. And his work, when I was looking for 3v3 stuff, that was all that was there. And without that, I probably don't start thinking about things the way that I have uh, and trying to add to it. It was uh, great for, um, for action, but I felt that he could be more specific. I'll say he could be more specific, but there's the potential for the practices to be more specific about the outcomes in relation to the principles of, of play. So, but, you know, standing on the shoulders of giants, he's probably the giant whose shoulders who I stand upon. And the last one is Dan Michichi, who, when England were massively successful in that summer of 2017, Michichi was around, was set up, and he came up with the really, really good 
very simple 666 principle that all of the teams used, which was, can we attack with a minimum of six players? Can we get over the halfway line within six passes? Can we win the ball back within six seconds? And I think that's the closest that we, the English FA, have come to having a true identity for their teams. Very good. Those are the big four for me. Excellent. I think that's really interesting, isn't it? I mean, and I just want to make you wonder, how do you think, given what you said there and you mentioned from coaches from even the modern day and you go back to um, Horsebean as well, how do you think coaching and player development has changed over the years? I mean, I know we touched on the language and everything else, but... um, do you think coaches are better these days, or do you think and do you think players take information on better these days, or do you think sometimes, as we mentioned earlier on, the language is just used to actually paper over the cracks that it's not really there's not as much information being given that's actually really relevant. I think they get I think they get a lot more thrown at them, and I think that creates a lot more pressure for young players in academy environments. Parents and players themselves, because I've spoken to some recently who, who are going into the, these environments at the age of 11, they, they really want to be there. They really want to get into, into academies. And then they get a lot of, a lot of information, a lot of feedback. I don't know, just genuinely, I don't know how much difference it makes to them having their own video clips and how much they are actually metacognitively learning from these things. Or if they are just sitting there, like I know I've been told a couple of people do, and they just flip through and look for their highlights. You know what? Um, I, I think you've just said something there that you know maybe I'm just old and grumpy, but uh, I, I think you make some absolutely fantastic points. And this is my this is my point about about education and language and how we talk and what we do. Video clips. No one really debating the benefit of a player, but are we just doing that because hey, it's a cool thing to do? Or actually, we are we actually sitting there with the player explaining or telling them what to look for, showing them examples of good and bad, and explaining what that process should look like, as opposed to yeah, we do video clips or we do three video clips a week. What's the player looking for? All we know is to look for this. What is that? Have you demonstrated that? How are you showing him? So I think like sometimes I'm probably rambling a bit. I hear so many coaches saying, yeah, we do this, we do this, we do this. And they said, that's great. Why? What's that mean? And explain to me how it works. And tell me, as you said earlier, what do you want that outcome to look like? I I know in theory why we do it, but whether that's actually what happens, I have to ask some people who are more involved in the process than, than I am. Listen, I'm telling you, lads, I've used video clips all my coaching career. Give a player a video clip that he hasn't really seen. So a game he's just played in. Give him a 14-second clip. So the event will happen somewhere in the middle. So there's about five or six seconds pre-event, five or six seconds post-event. And and tell him to explain back what he's looking at. You'll find that all he'll go is, I scored. So you, there's so much more to it. You need them to maybe start. <laughs> yeah, no, I'm telling you, it's, it's the Instagram culture, Mark. They just yeah. need something to highlight how great they are. And but, I don't blame the kids. I, I don't want people to think I think I don't blame the players. No, the I totally agree with you. But it is. It's like, a, don't give them these resources unless you've explained how to use the resource. 100%. And you would like them to use the resource. 100%. It's, look, it's a pet hate of mine. And it, it brings me on to my next question, Pete. Um, do you have any pet hates about coaching? You're you're doing it as long as we are. I, I have loads. I could write a book about pet hates on coaching. But do you have I've any got a few. Hate? I've got a few. <laughs> okay, um, go for it. I don't know if these are in order, but big one. You can't score unless you've made five passes. Why? 
I love that. It's like you, you can't, two you can't switch the play. It's a switch and play session. You can't switch it unless you've made five parts. Why? If it's on for me to switch the play, why can't I just switch it? It's not my fault they're not coming to close me down. If they come and close me down and I have to pass the ball, that's another story. But no, we're just making five passes for the sake of it. There might be some purposes such as, okay, we want to draw them more across by making an extra pass and then hit the switch once we've dragged a few more players over. Sure, but is that really going to be in a, a session for 12-year-olds? Yeah, like so, that. so passes, you can't do something until you've made a certain number of passes. That's that's a bit of a bugbear of mine. Um, touch limits is another one. I hate that. Two touch. And I again, it, this might come from what I said at the beginning about dribblers. If I'm a player who is an outstanding dribbler and you put me on two touches, you've you've killed me. Okay, maybe you might be trying to force some learning out of me to play more quickly, but we can do that in another way, surely. Don't take away my ability to, to dribble. And I was talking to a coach the other day about one of the games that I sometimes play. And I play a game where it's based on the exaggeration principle from teaching games for understanding, where I have it that you are not, no one on this pitch is allowed to pass the ball until someone has scored. So if I score, I've now unlocked the ability to pass. So which player is my team going to try and get on the ball as much as possible? And then if, if another player scores, they unlock the ability too. And if I score again, I can pass it on. And the team that has won is the team where everyone has unlocked the ability to pass. But then I go and play the game the other way around where no one can dribble and all you can do is pass. And it's the same thing when a player scores, they can then dribble. Who do we want to give the ball to now? And then we start saying that, well, it becomes too predictable. Players are too predictable. As a defender, if I know that player can only dribble, that affects the way that I defend him. If I know that player only passes, that affects the way that I defend him. And I do it for that very specific reason. I take it away so they can then get it back and appreciate the benefits of it. Yeah. So yeah, I like that. Touch touch limits are definitely a bad I heard a coach, and it was a great way of putting it. A player said to a coach once, uh, how many touches can I have? And he said, well, take the right amount of touches. Yeah. I was like, great. So that's given all the power back to the player to decide. If, if if I'm not under pressure, take touches. If I am under pressure, take less touches. You know, all that kind of stuff, because that is that decision-making that they need to be good at. So really good. Any others, Pete, before we move on? I'm, I'm dying to get to your fantasy five-a-side team, by the way. Uh, <laughs> um, I should have made it a fantasy three-a-side team for you, really. <laughs> yeah, well, maybe we could cut them out, a few players out, and cut out the goalkeeper. Um, <laughs> co-coaching. So a lot of the time when coaches are working together what happens is one player does or one coach does a bit of a session next one does a bit of a session or one coach takes half the group the other takes half the group and they swap over it would be much better in my opinion to have one coach who runs the session and the practice and one coach who goes around and works on with all of the individuals on all of the things that they need to be looking at or something that they see or individual work i'm not saying that that never happens but most of the time what happens is one of the first two things that i've said and it just like it feels like having a waste of the two coaches so that's 
that that's one of those that's a little one that just think we could do this so much better when you you've got this. yeah yeah no that that's very interesting yeah because you see that some people are lucky that they have you know three and four coaches with a group and and mm. they do different things or do, i always feel sorry for coach on their own it's very very difficult to control a group and get your message across on your own because yeah. there's so many other things going on on the periphery so that that is a very interesting one actually uh, i like that and i've often debated what is the best way you know for say it was two or three coaches the best way to maximize the impact on the group for the outcome you want so yeah very good again we could talk about that for days brilliant pete moving on I, i've thoroughly enjoyed a chat but look i'm conscious of your time mate you've been very very generous with your time um just before you go on every episode we ask all our guests to give us their dream fantasy five-a-side team and it can be made up of whoever you want mate so who would make your dream team peter so I could have been very obvious and just picked the players who have ever lived and just put Maradona, Messi and Co in there. But I've not done well, that. I've got... well, that's it. Okay. Maradona, Messi. Like, I don't think you need much more after that. No, I'm, but they're not in my team. I, I, um, I didn't expect I, Peter to go I'm to conventional. Going to this is a I'm going to be honest with you. If you've got a goalkeeper, considering all that you'd preach and talk, if there's a keeper in there, I'm going to be a bit disappointed. I'm just putting that I've, I've got a goalkeeper, but I've got a goalkeeper who I admire for what he has done with his feet. I think he was one of the, the first goalkeepers who, in, to come and play in England and, and be really good with his feet. And I've gone for Pepe Reina. Oh, nice. There is a show I didn't expect. He was good. Yeah, I don't think he's been mentioned there. No, and, no, that's a, that's and I've, also, I've also picked him as not my favourite as well. So he was. I I, I loved him in goal for Liverpool. Nice. So and his he was different to the other goalkeepers at the time. He had some of that futsal style goalkeeping technique, and he was brilliant with his feet. Um, he'd been a, a fantastic sweeper keeper. Brilliant. Um, so I've gone for Pepe Reina. My defensive player, if you can call him defensive, is Moussa Dembele, oh. um, ex of Tottenham Hotspur, uh, who was a a holding midfielder who progressed the ball, but he progressed the ball in a different way to almost anybody else. He dropped deep and he dribbled with it. He And he went forward with the ball at his feet and very, very rarely did he actually lose it. So I've nice. gone with Moussa Dembele as my nice. defensive player. So there's a bit of futsal influence, bit of dribbling influence. I, I like this. Uh, so the dribbling is going to continue. I put JJ Okocha in my team. Ah, what One of my favourite players of all time. I could just watch clips of JJ doing his flicks and tricks. Amazing. One of the first articles that I wrote that got into a, a magazine, I wrote about the brief time that Ronaldinho and JJ Okocha were together at PSG. Ooh. And and Ronaldinho has said that the only player who he really admired was a Kocha. And just imagine having those two. I mean, you you know the, the old phrase: they needed two footballs, one for each of them. You <laughs> would. Nice. This is this is shaping up to be a good team. Next, I've gone for um, a player who's left left indelible memories on me because the Cruyff dream team. Much lauded, but then in that final in ninety, the, the in that nineteen ninety four final, Milan ripped them to pieces, and the player who ripped them to pieces was Dejan Savicevic. Oh my god! So and Good I had show. and I loved watching Milan uh, when Football Italia was on yep. in the nineties, and Savicevic 
was was mesmerizing. So yeah. I took Savicevic in there. Jesus, some good shouts. I tell you, Pete, you've got a team of wizards. Yeah, <laughs> Harry Potter up top. Yeah, well, I've got I've got my my personal favorite player of all time up front. I know who it's going to be. I, go on, say it, but I know it because it's Yari on your bio. Yari Littmanen. Oh my God, what a shout! Yari Littmanen is my favorite player of all time. He's the first player who I fell in love with because of his ability to seemingly do everything on the pitch, and I, I was so disappointed. But Liverpool got him so late in his career yeah, yeah, yeah. and then used him so badly. Um, yeah. But my team is Reina, Dembele, Okocha, Savicevic and Littman. Jesus, that, that's a cracker. That is as good a five-a-side team as I've heard now. And and a definite flavour and theme running through that side. Lots of flair. Yeah, yeah, that that, that, that five-a-side team has enormous thought in it. <laughs> as well, some of the teams we get is me mom, me dad, me brother. Uh, <laughs> as well, but that team is enormous. Not top, but like you know what, you'd struggle to get the ball off that team in a final. I wanted a team that would excite and entertain, and that, that's not be, would. and not be really, really obvious. So I, 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 that is an amazing team. I don't have, have favorites. Probably have to have Ronaldinho on the bench. I'd say. But that is an incredible, incredible side. I, I need to go and look at more footage. You get the ball off that team in a phone box. Hadji <laughs> <laughs> nearly got in. Just want to say Oh, that. Georgie. Hadji. I, I, I went with Savicevic instead. Wow. There, there you go. go. So no, you, you need to write a sequel book and you need to have a second five-a-side team the next time we chat. <laughs> well, Peter, it's been a, a privilege chatting to you. We've been back and forth as coaching badges and the bearded coach on Twitter for years. It's finally brilliant to meet you, put a face to a name and, and I thoroughly, thoroughly enjoyed our chat, mate. Looking forward to keeping in touch, but look, all it remains for myself and Mark to do is thank you. Uh, wish you all the best with your future endeavors, be they on the pitch or, or as an author or whatever else you choose to do. You're always welcome to chat to us, mate. And, uh, but thanks again for your time. Really, really wish you well. It's been brilliant. Thank you very much. Thank both of you. It's War Chest time, and in the War Chest on every episode, Mark will try to bring you some books or documentaries or stuff like that just to check out to uh, aid and supplement your own coaching development. So, Mark, what have you got for us to check out in the War Chest this week? Oh, I have a few things here at the moment. Um, I'm actually watching um, this documentary series called Untold. Um, This is volume three. It's Disney, if I can remember, Poppy. So the first one in the division is about Jake Paul, which I have no time for or no no respect for as an individual, but that's another day's conversation. But it's a very interesting and fascinating documentary on him and his brother and how they've actually gone and used their success to now even move into um, the world of sports. So, yeah, and then the other one that I watched was Johnny Football. Absolutely superb, superb. Johnny Manziel, um, American football. Everybody knows that I love American sports, but just talk about American sports in a nutshell. Watch it. It's batshit crazy. It's just fucking brilliant. Um, another one, Hall of Shame, which is part of that, which is Victor Victor Conte's um, whole doping scandal uh, with Barry Bonds and track and field uh, legend Marion Jones and Tim Montgomery. Really interesting. And another one, which isn't a brilliant one, but also is a good watch, though, is Swamp Kings. Um, I'm in the, but the University of Florida winning streak. And if you want to go and see the unhealthy side of college football and some of the bullshit that goes along with it, watch that one as well. So I've watched that. That's quite good. I've seen also there's something with Ricky Hatton coming out. So it'll be interesting. Maybe that we'll see, have a look at that and see what that's like. I've also seen something um, that I've 
that I was actually seen on LinkedIn, and it's actually um, a previous guest that we had. Oh, Simon, and it was it's, it's it's he's doing lots of really really cool little YouTube documentaries on things like the Fiji rugby and the rugby sevens, and lots of lessons and lessons in leadership, um, and resilience and team bonding and team ethics and team team dynamics, and it's very very interesting. I just thought that was really really good as well. And um, yeah, and the last thing as well, I think you're going to speak about yourself is Dan Carter's book. Oh yeah, I'm actually in the middle of it. I'm listening to it, The Art of Winning, and it's it's excellent. It's kind of ten lessons from his sporting life that you can apply to sport, to business, to your life in general. But uh, it's good. He talks about purpose, humility, managing your mind, the pressure environment, resilience, leadership, all this kind of stuff. It's right up your street. But uh, he's uh, what comes across straight away is that he's actually quite a humble guy for such a talented yeah. rugby player. But yeah, the lessons are worth listening to, and he backs it up with some stories from his his extensive rugby career, you know, across club and country, and what a what a player he was. But uh, yeah, I'm, I'm really enjoying that. Actually, um, came upon it in Audible and listening to it. But no, a really good stuff. I have to give a, a selfless, selfish plug to the new Coaching Badges Podcast Squad Initiative. It's been great. We've had one session so far. We got great support from the boys, Lee Cosgrove and the lads at the Sunday Share. And all it is, you know, for those who haven't heard of it, is getting coaches onto a Zoom call to chat about topics. And we had one the other night talking about, you know, starting out as a coach. And it was fantastic to have such open and honest engagement in the room where everybody's opinion counted. Everybody could chip in and and discuss and debate stuff. And it was really good. And it's obviously early days, but uh, we'll see where that goes. But um, yeah, really enjoyed the first one. It's just good always to. Yeah, but to we talk need to get better because Jesus Christ, we were brutal at timekeeping. Uh, yeah, we, we went a little bit into Fergie time. Let's do an hour and an hour and forty five minutes later. We're going, okay, that's section one done. Um, actually, sorry, I'm actually. just mention, pretend it was a cook game. Yeah, I didn't mention it was actually Simon Hartley and it's B World Class. I didn't give the full oh, title. I, I love Simon. Yeah, but check, I, I check out it, Simon on uh, on Twitter. World, world class, isn't it? World class, yeah, Simon. World class. Really good. But yeah, and he produces these little little snippets on leadership and all of that. It's just I really would recommend. He's a he's a very very knowledgeable, intelligent guy and a really nice guy as well. He was very good in the podcast. But yeah, I just stumbled across that and the other night as well. But yeah, yeah. So lots of good things there Brilliant. as well. Excellent. All right, mate. We leave it there. Cool. That's it, folks. The end of Season 4, Episode 7. We hope you got something out of it. My thanks as ever to Mark for keeping me on track. A special word of thanks to the supporters of our new squad initiative. Have to mention Lee Cosgrove and the crew from the Sunday Share uh, for supporting us and helping us to get this squad initiative up and running. Really appreciate it, lads, and, and looking forward to working together in the future. Thanks once again to our fantastic guest, Peter Prickett, for joining us tonight. Brilliant, brilliant chat. Really enjoyed it. And we wish you continued success, mate. Check out Peter's books if you haven't already got a chance. We'll be back again next month with some more coaching chat and discussion. Uh, Keep in touch with us on Twitter at Coaching Badges. Stay safe and remember, when it comes to coaching, there's no right or wrong way, but there's always a better way.